Readers of the New York Times on February 18, 1914 might have missed it. But if you looked closely at the top of page 5, you would have seen it. A small two-columned article entitled Zonoris's Funeral, Ragged Edge Club Founder Had Asked for Little Dutch Band. A curious headline, certainly for us today. The article goes on to share that in a dance hall over a saloon on Avenue A, on New York's Lower East Side, a funeral service was conducted the previous afternoon for the novelist and journalist Zoe Anderson Norris. Her body, the Times reports, lay in state in a violet-covered coffin surrounded by very few of her real relatives, but as many as you could fit of her admirers and friends. And indeed, as she wished, a small, out-of-tune brass band played to mourners as a memorial to commemorate her life. The world of early 20th century Lower East Side New York was a dirty, unfair, struggle-filled, poverty-ridden one for many of its inhabitants, including, at times, for Zoe herself. It was a world she came to as a committed writer and journalist from the prairies and farmlands of Kentucky and Kansas. As she came to Gotham determined to remake her life, she dedicated her relatively short life to improving the conditions she saw with unfiltered passionate rants intended to convey in raw and soul-bearing detail the real state of the unfortunate who wandered and for some who lived on the streets of the immigrant-filled east side of the city. Her mission, that was clear in all she wrote, was to fight for the poor with her pen. The life and contributions of Zoe Anderson Norris have nearly been forgotten today, until now. My guest today, scholar and author Eve M. Kahn, after her show on forgotten Gilded Age painter Mary Rogers Williams last year, has brought another life into focus for us. Zoe Anderson Norris, as Eve has called her, could be the Nellie Bly you never knew. She wanted to change the world. She wanted to change her world as she saw it in Gilded Age New York, a world of dramatic inequality, oppression of immigrants, races, women and children, and with a literary ferocity, as you will see, change it forever. Eve's in-depth scholarship is resulting in a forthcoming biography, as well as a unique and extraordinary exhibition of printed material and artifacts opening this month at New York's Grolier Club that will finally tell her story. In this very special episode, Eve and I will take you back to New York just after the turn of the 20th century, to the squalid streets of the Lower East Side to look at Zoe's life, and as is so often the case in history, when we shine the light on the past, it reflects back on our present today. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. In the first issue of the literary magazine she was to come to publish beginning in 1909, Zoe Anderson Norris tells the story of a conversation she had with a New York editor for whom she was writing not long after she arrived in New York. The great editor, as she called him, challenged her on her choice of subjects. Don't write of the poor. Write of those who are making their mark in the world, who are doing things. Write of those who are in the public eye, but don't write of the poor. Nobody is interested in the poor. But Zoe, summoning her power and drawing herself up to him, answered directly, You are mistaken there. I am interested in them. And she continues to present her point of view in her magazine. I live among them. I write of them. They are part of my life. I am interested in all of them. There are none of them too humble for me. The pushcart people, the vendors of fruit, the little old wigged women who sit so patiently. 
And it is in spite of it all that they too live. In spite of the poverty, the want, the cold, the lack of clothing, the lack of food, and the lack of the milk of human kindness. Eve M. Kahn, my guest today on The Gilded Gentleman, with her impeccable research, has allowed not only Zoe's many subjects to live, but most importantly, to allow us to hear Zoe's voice once again and to understand some of just who this exceptional, passionate journalist was. And as we listen to Eve's as well as Zoe's own words, it will surprise no listener just how clear and relevant Zoe's voice is for us today. Eve M. Kahn is the former antiques columnist for The New York Times, an author and independent scholar. She writes regularly for The New York Times, Apollo Magazine, and the magazine Antiques. Based in Manhattan, she helps lead scholarly nonprofit groups, including the Grolier Club, the Victorian Society's New York chapter, and CUNY's Women Writing Women's Lives. Her book, Forever Seeing New Beauties, the Forgotten Impressionist, Mary Rogers Williams, 1857 to 1907, was published by Wesleyan University Press in 2019 and continues to win prizes. Our subject today, forgotten Gilded Age journalist Zoe Anderson Norris, will be the subject of a new exhibition curated by Eve at New York's Grolier Club, as well as the subject of Eve's latest book in progress. Eve, I am so honored to welcome you back to The Gilded Gentleman. It is always a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you and to have you right next to me across the table is such an honor. Welcome back. Thank you, Carl. I'll, I'll respond to any invitation you have for a podcast. Well, I'm always so fascinated and interested on the subjects that you uncover and that we get a chance certainly to talk about today. So, Eve, Zoe Anderson Norris will be a discovery and I think a revelation to most listeners. So before we get into some of the fascinating details and twists and turns of her life, can you encapsulate for listeners just who she was overall? So the elevator pitch for my book is um, the Nellie Bly you've never heard of, because one of her accomplishments was to report undercover on what it was like to be desperately poor in early 20th century New York. She is, I believe, the only Gilded Age woman to run her own magazine while writing virtually every word. Those are her two star accomplishments. Well, those are pretty impressive accomplishments, right? Now, what do you find particularly extraordinary about her? She grew up in poverty and then went on to write about poverty while bringing herself to the edge of poverty. Now, she has been so long forgotten today, but thanks to you, that is changing can you talk about how you first discovered Zoe Anderson Norris? So the Grolier Club is partly a museum and partly a club. And one of the members, uh, Steve Lamezo, was gearing up in 2018 to exhibit a fraction of his massive collection of American periodicals, 83,000 or so at last count. The Groyer Club had a tour of his home in New Jersey. And um, we were down in his basement and he handed me a, a bound volume of a magazine. And he said, this is published written by Zoe Anderson Norris. I, you know, I've always thought she was a fascinating, underrated character. And I opened this bound volume of six issues of Zoe's bi-monthly magazine, The East Side, published between 1909 and 1914. And I saw her name writ huge in spiky letters. I saw her own image recur again and again. I also saw her sympathetic um, portrayals of Eastern European Jewish immigrants, um, like my own grandparents. And I thought, oh, somebody must have written something on her. And so in Steve Lamezo's basement, I pulled out my phone and I scrolled to see what had been written about her lately. And there was virtually nothing and no decent scholarship about her. And here I am well along my journey. In creating a biography and telling all the various aspects of her life, which we are certainly going to get into. So, so much of her story 
mirrors that of so many New Yorkers in a way. An artist, a writer comes to New York from somewhere else, reinvents themselves a bit. Can you share a little bit about Zoe's early life and how that actually affected her? So she was born in 1860 in Kentucky, just southwest of Lexington. She called her hometown Harrodsburg a little old dog kennel town as an adult. She was one of 15 children of Henry and Henrietta Anderson. Her father was a he had converted as a young man in the early 19th century to the the then new Disciples of Christ Evangelical Faith, one of 15 children. He worked as an itinerant pastor, translating the New Testament again from ancient Greek through the Disciples of Christ lens. So her father's uh, translation was considered an, a scholarly achievement, but he didn't make much money on it. He didn't sell very many copies. She would have witnessed fresh scars of um, Civil War battlefields as a toddler. As an infant, she would have heard the guns of, of battle right near where she was living. And she never stopped writing about the beauties of velvety Kentucky bluegrass country near where she had grown up. She married as a teenager, like an idiot, as she put it in a 1913 memoir, spent years in Wichita, Kansas with a boring grocery store owning uh, husband who cheated on her. And by the mid 1890s, as her ch- they have two children, a son named Rob, a daughter named Clarence. By the, by the mid 1890s, she's distracting herself and making extra money by pouring out a fire hose of words. She has relatives who've been homesteading in Kansas at the frontier. And and so between the, the velvety bluegrass Kentucky landscape and the brutal conditions of the Kansas frontier, all of those recur in her writings as a, as a mature writer again and again. It seems like the impulse for her to write occurred fairly early. Can you talk about when she first started to write and what it was that she first started to write? Her earliest writings were under a pseudonym in a Wichita newspaper. She called herself Nancy Yanks, and she published hilariously gossipy stories in about Wichita posers. It was a nouveau riche town. There'd been an enormous real estate boom. And she had gone to an elite girls' school in Kentucky, and she felt very superior to these uh, provincial uh, posers, basically. And she made fun of local musicians. She made fun of temperance activists. She made fun of people trying to censor circus posters, lest they inspire um, dark thoughts in the young men of Wichita. The, the column lasted about 14 weeks, and then it was yanked. Nancy Yanks was yanked, and I still have not figured out why. A mystery to continue to uncover, right? Now, is there anything in the early writings of Zoe's that give us an inclination of the point of view that she would then use later on in her more mature writings after she comes to New York? Even by the beginnings of her career, she's also writing about poverty. One of her first pieces of newspaper fiction was about two little boys freezing to death outside of a um, an elaborate mansion, um, the kind that were being that were springing up in Wichita during um, a holiday party. They can smell um, the delicious feast inside, uh, but no one will give them any money outside or, or any handouts of any kind outside the mansion. Another one of her early short stories is about a, a, a Kansas frontier family who are brought to the brink of poverty by an idealistic political activist father, and the daughter is killed by a tree bough that falls during a cyclone. She never stopped writing about um, victims of circumstance and economic uh, misdeeds. Now, what ultimately brought her to New York, and how did she begin to construct a life when she got here? So she divorced in 1898. She left behind her teenage son, Rob. She brought her teenage daughter, Clarence, with her. They spent two years roaming Europe, where she documented American... She wrote fiction and journalism about American women traveling in Europe, including um, the shock of poverty in Europe, particularly in Italy, all the disabled beggars. By 1901, she moved to New York, and she felt most at home here with all sorts of other people who 
had grown up often in uh, devout families where, and felt constricted by their conservative backgrounds. And um, one of her first long newspaper first-person features is about going to a New York cemetery with her friends on what was then called Decoration Day, and we now call it Memorial Day. She went to a cemetery that was probably Woodlawn in the Bronx, and she put flags on the graves of soldiers, even though she knew that those were the same soldiers who had the same federal forces who had done so much damage in her home state. And she reflected on being from a, a border state that was technically neutral. She reflected on how how comfortable she felt putting flags on the graves of federal soldiers because she had lived in so many places. But the, these were the people who, having found no peace or love elsewhere, had become her people. Now, she wrote three novels and many, many, many stories along with her nonfiction journalism. I'm really curious about that. Can you talk about her work as a novelist, because I believe at least one of them was done fairly early on. What were the novels and what was she trying to say through them? So one novel um, is based very closely on her travels in Europe and her observations of uh, desperate poverty. Um, the heroine of it's a book called The Quest of Polly Locke. Polly Locke is an American looking for the ideal man, and she wishes she could empty her purse again and again for all of the beggars that she is seeing. Um, she wrote a novel called The Color of His Soul. That brought her to her first peak of literary fame in 1902, and it is a about a hypocritical socialist orator named Cecil Mallon, who preaches sympathy for the wage slaves of the world, but he has a teenage mistress who's a seamstress who actually is a wage slave. And when she becomes pregnant, he abandons her and um, she dies in childbirth. The book debuted to rave reviews, and days later, um, a man that Zoe knew from Kansas, who was living in New York and was actually one of her neighbors in Harlem, he surfaced. His name was Courtney Lemon, which is far, far too similar to Cecil Mallon in his mind. And he threatened lawsuits and the publisher pulled the book. And her third and final novel, it's called The Way of the Wind. And it is about a family from Kentucky who farm disastrously at the Kansas frontier and fall into poverty and madness. And their homestead eventually becomes Wichita and is worth millions. But um, they never profit off of their vision that that had been a good place to settle. So even in her novels, we see her crusading for underprivileged folks, for the poor, right? It's something that really does start very early with her and continues on. To fight for the poor with my pen was her motto by that the end the of her life. That was the famous quote, right? Now, she was also quoted as saying, and I, uh, you and I have talked about this, I think it was fascinating. She was quoted as saying that she often mixed imagination with facts. Well, what did she mean by that, Eve? <laughs> She wrote fiction about people who were writing fiction based on truth. She wrote uh, journalism about mining fiction. She wrote journalism about sometimes lying. Um, the lyinger, the better, she said, was a problem for some journalists. But she would joke that if you read my stuff, you'll find fewer lies. And that is while she was, in fact, telling lies, including she repeated this same demonstrable falsehood again and again throughout her writing career. I am descended from generations of British vicars who helped the poor centuries of British vicars, many of them named, like my father, Henry Tompkins Anderson. And, you know, that is why I cannot stop fighting for the poor with my pen. They were translators and writers and their sermons were illuminating. It's all made up. She specifically says that they were in Northumberland. I'm sorry, but a directory of all the vicars of Northumberland exists. And there's never even been one with the last name Anderson, let alone Henry Tompkins Anderson. I don't know if it's a lie she was told as a kid or if it's just one of her favorite fabrications. But it served her well, correct, in in creating her her persona of, of a journalist that really was fighting for the poor. So there's sort of a fine line in there, don't you think? So to invent a pedigree like that? that justifies your fight for the poor with your pen? Why not? 
<laughs> now, one of her greatest legacies, and gosh, we could talk about this for the whole show, and greatest works was her own literary magazine called The East Side. Now, can you talk about that and how that began for her? I mean, she was very widely published in a number of other journals and magazines and newspapers and periodicals, but then she started her own. Can you talk about all of that? So by 1907, 1908, it seems that she'd offended a lot of editors. They'd plagiarized her. They'd harassed her. They'd stiffed her on their fees. By 1909, she pawns her remaining jewelry and she founds her own magazine with no one to tell her what she can and can't do ever again. It comes out every other month from spring of 1909 until days before her death in 1914. She gives herself every masthead title, including Printer's Devil, Circulation Liar, Boot Black, The Whole Cheese, and The Whole Shebang. And she writes every word. She opens every issue with a sermon, meandering about some issue that she's angry about um, or amused by. And then she mixes fiction and fact in short essays throughout it. And she also reviews theater. She reviews music. She reviews art. And she talks about the antics of her friends. But one of the things that made her so controversial and challenging and why she was, why there was could be a combative relationship with other editors is because she was really lifting the veil, correct, about the conditions that she was seeing of the immigrant population of the poor. She wasn't sugarcoating anything. She was very direct. In fact, when I was reading some of the sections of that, she is very angry and she is very clear that she wants and of course we're talking about the gilded age here so she wants these upper levels of society to really look at this is that correct do you think that's a fair assessment she writes vividly about terrible conditions she writes about kids are starving and freezing she writes about um just basic rules aren't followed why as soon as you get to an immigrant neighborhood is there typhoid spreading trash on the streets? Why are the cops harassing the peddlers? Why are they throwing a confused immigrant woman off of a trolley? Because she has the wrong transfer slip in her hands. Why are men trudging through toxic muck in factories? Why can't basic laws of decency be enforced down here? Um, she becomes known as a crusader. And she, no, she sugarcoated nothing of what she was seeing. She would literally write a travel log of a long walk from her home on East 15th Street uh, south to the, the skyscrapers that were rising along Wall Street. When you read it now, it, it's just I, I wanted to just stand up and cheer for her because really because she really was trying to cast the spotlight on something that was not often seen. Now, one of the things I want to talk about and you mentioned the graphics in her magazine. You mentioned her, the way her signature appears, her image. So I want to talk about her illustrator, who was a man named William Oberhart. This was a really important part of the East Side. So can you talk about the illustrations and can you talk about Oberhart's contribution? He was a German-American of incredible budding talent when she met him. Uh, he would go on to fame for many things in the illustration world, including illustrating some of the first covers of Time magazine. She called him the artist, and she um, he was depicted in some of her, of her works as he worked for her for free in exchange for a share of her free tickets, her press passes to theater shows. He followed her around around the slums. And he sketched market stalls and he sketched children at the edge of starvation. And he sketched a rabbi. They got access to a synagogue and he sketched the, the women, the silhouettes of the women in a brightly lit synagogue during um, services. They went out to Ellis Island together. There are many great crusading writers of her time, but I don't think any of them so carefully interwove gorgeous, haunting imagery the way Zoe did with Oberhard help in uh, the East Side. And in your upcoming exhibition at the Grolier that is about to open, we see some of those illustrations that you've curated and, and put on display, correct? Um, we even see um, a lithograph stone that he used to create a portrait of her. I'm so curious, how did she find the subjects to write about? I mean, they were certainly all around her, but you've shared an extraordinary 
story, at least one where she actually went undercover to get a different perspective on the subject she was writing about. Can you talk about that? People would ask her where she got ideas, and she would say, I look out my window, my literary sanctum on East 15th Street, at the court of a hundred living windows. And she would write about abusive fathers that she was seeing through the windows. And she would write about the telephone line man shimmying up the pole in her backyard and offering telephone lines to people. She would write about... um, She would see little kids trying to help their families by washing the windows and dangling off the fire escapes. Um, She went undercover a number of times. She would dress as a uh, she would dress as an immigrant and ride a trolley with the wrong transfer in her hand, knowing that she was going to get harassed by the conductor and then publishing that conductor's uh, his tag, his tag number so that he could be identified as a bad employee. She went to charities and said, you know, I was supposed to meet my husband. Um, I'm from out of town. He never showed up. I don't know what to do. Where can I sleep? She would explore where charities would send her um, as a homeless person. And she also sat for a portrait by William Oberhart, Obi as he was named, while she had um, a shawl over her head. She had an accordion. She was, there was a, a cup for coins attached to her accordion. And she went from curb to curb on the Lower East side. She was a good musician, but on the accordion, she only knew a couple of songs. And one of them was My Old Kentucky Home. So how persuasive an immigrant she she made um, while um, belting out My Old Kentucky Home. How many people were actually convinced by her act? I'm not sure. But she certainly got a perspective out of it, right? I think that's fair to say. She got about $1.50 in coins, <laughs> which was more than she was making as a magazine publisher. Now, You are writing a number of articles about Zoe, which are extraordinary, and you give a truly brilliant quote in one particular publication that really combines your words along with Zoe's. And I would be so honored if you would read that passage for my listeners of The Gilded Gentleman today. I wrote this for a literary magazine based in California called Catamaran, and it is edited by the great Catherine Segerson, who is a direct descendant of one of Zoe's uh, 14 siblings. And just flukishly, uh, I was able to find that there's another literary magazine editor in the family. Um, So shout out to you, Catherine. I'm going to read a piece of what I wrote for you. Zoe drew inspiration from her apartment's view of Pinnacle's turrets, towers, and minarets, of skyscrapers looming over crumbling tenements. Peering into a hundred living windows below, she saw men abusing wives and children, unaware of a literary witness overhead. Zoe interviewed families of young women killed in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and documented how charities had reneged on promises to help. She pitied sex workers. No one else believed their stories of traffickings and beatings. Wealthy suffragists in silk and velvets and clueless about slum suffering. Deadbeat fathers who chose prison over alimony payments. Printers and binders who mangled her magazine pages. No one was spared her lively critique and testimony. She stereotyped some striving Jews, anarchist Italians, thuggish Irish cops, but paradoxically despised bigotry against so-called aliens. What are we, all of us, but aliens, driven from our mother country by one thing or another, fanatic religious persecution, political persecution, or fear of the gallows? She reminisced about Kentucky and Kansas and puzzled over why she had married a second time. Were you mad or sane that you tried it again, she asked herself. She added reviews of art, music, and theater into the mix and sparred in print with her critics, including publishers of other small magazines, while revealing her own faults. She considered herself prone to evil as the sparks fly upward. Thank you so much, Eve. I love that passage because in your brilliant words, that encapsulates so much of who Zoe is and was. And in her words, that gives a sense of her fire. Don't you agree? Of her perspective, of her passion. You have it right there. I haven't mentioned her poetry yet. Every issue ended with a poem. And some of these poems were uh, raging against the unfairness of the world. Why are all the newspapers reporting on how many 
Titans died on the Titanic. Why aren't we reporting about the immigrants who drowned like rats in the hold? Um, she also wrote poems about, about her own experience. And uh, one of her experiences was to disastrously briefly marry again in New York to a penniless newspaper illustrator who specialized in silhouettes. And she wrote poems about uh, regretting having married again. Um, she wrote a poem called The Song of the Typewriter. The refrain is, now work, damn you work. And the message is, don't get distracted by love again. One of the things that you and I have discussed and could devote a whole show just to this is you have said that she was richly contradictory. Can you explain what you mean by that? So she, as I mentioned in this passage from Catamaran, she stereotyped ethnic groups. She said things that might get her at the verge of cancellation today. But I think that if she did get to the verge of cancellation and someone was angry about um, some phrasing she had used, that her friends of every imaginable ethnicity would come to her defense. I have in black and white people defending her in their autobiographies, for example. And also, I can tell you what a diverse crowd came to her funeral. Um, I used to lose sleep over some of these stereotypes that she rattled off in an unfiltered way. I used to lie awake thinking, how can I write about someone who's not a saint? And then I began to realize how fascinating it is in itself that she wasn't a saint. Now, Eve, what do we know of how actually she was heard. What do we know about the effect that her commentary had? Did it actually affect some change? So we see her profiled often as one of the few women living in the slums by choice and writing about it. Her work is praised, her work on the East Side particularly is praised widely. And I know that politicians, reformers began to regard her as an influencer. You start to see her writing about how a rabbi came down to talk to me and brought me to the tombs because he wanted me to see a young man who had attempted suicide after losing his job and worrying about no longer being able to help support his family. You used to be put in jail if you attempted suicide. A rabbi brought her to the tombs to say, can you write about what a criminal act this is, that this act is criminalized? I know that supporters of Irish American rights would come down and talk to her. I know that um, representatives from the Italian American community would come down and talk to her and bring her to see. The, there was an Italian American activist who brought her to the opera, for example, and said, look at how cultured my people are. How can there be such bigotry um, against them? And I know there were reformers who credited her as an influence. For example, Sophie Irene Loeb, who uh, went on to run child welfare charities and to write extensively about how to improve conditions for the children of the poor, including no longer taking them away from their families and putting them in institutions. Sophie Irene Loeb called Zoe a universal inspiration dispenser. And with that, Eve and I are going to take a short break, but we will be back to continue Zoe's story. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, my guest, author and scholar Eve Kahn, and I are talking about the rediscovered Gilded Age journalist Zoe Anderson Norris. So, Eve, one of the most fascinating aspects I have found of, of her life was that she began what she called the Ragged Edge club. And she actually earned the title, the Queen of Bohemia. So can you talk about both of those things and how all that evolved? So in her um, early writings, she uses the phrase ragged edge about to describe people who are at the verge of desperate poverty, who are at the verge of homelessness. At some point, a friend suggested that she found a club called the Ragged Edge Club. In the early 20th century, New York had numerous um, bohemian clubs like this. They didn't have a clubhouse. They were co-ed because all the clubs that had a clubhouse were, were for men only. And they had names like the Hungry Club 
Club and the Quaint Club and uh, the Playads Club. There were dozens of these groups that met for dinners, often weekly. Hers was the Ragged Edge Club. And um, unlike many of the others, there were no officers, there were no dues, there were no motions, and there were no, no seconding of motions. There was just the killing of care with a capital K. They met for weekly dinners at various New York restaurants, particularly on the Lower East Side, not that far from Zoe's home, but also in Midtown. And uh, they often danced between courses. They had a staff ragtime pianist, a black composer and and uh, musician named Harry Hugs. And they were written about as a phenomenon because some of their members could inhale cigarette smoke and spaghetti at the same time. Now, who were some of the members of the Ragged Edge Club? We know some of their names. We know, for example, uh, Ray Fiziak. He uh, was a writer, and he went on to make some of the earliest color films. We had she had a, uh, a, a Ragged Edge member named Libby Blundell, who sometimes put an E at the end of her name, and sometimes she didn't. Um, she was a, a singer and a prominent vaudeville uh, performer. Mabel Herbert Erner. Who has heard of Mabel Herbert Erner? She ended up being a, a prolific newspaper columnist. There were physicians, there were lawyers, there were Upper East Siders who were just curious. Betty Rogers, the wife of the comedian Will Rogers, uh, was a member, for example. A, a number of her members were calling themselves, they'd added Vaughn to their name at some point out of the blue, or they'd added a de, or they were calling them the Baroness of something. Um, many of her friends, um, as I said earlier, were on the run from a scandal in their hometowns and had changed their names uh, and to to reinvent themselves and in the magic city. And she'd helped that along. And right? she helped that along. And she would crown them, correct, or with a or knight them with a wine bottle. Can you talk about that? Yes. So she began to be called the Queen of Bohemia because she became known not only for her magazine, but also for these uh, boozy dervish dancing parties that she was throwing. At first, she disliked the title because Bohemia in her time, it implied being willing to live in filth and also having poor self-control and taking pride in that. Um, it meant living in Bohemia made someone in her time feel entitled to run off with any affinity, as they were euphemistically called, any lover who interested them, leaving obviously mostly men and leaving behind their children who were sometimes brought to the brink of um, starvation. The Queen of Bohemia. And then she decided to just run with it. And uh, she would wrap herself in a bedspread as a train. And she would use a long Hungarian wine bottle as a scepter. And thus she dubbed, for example, Lady Betty Rogers of the Bronx and Baron Bernhardt of Hoboken. These sound like kind of fun dinners. What do you think? And you actually, in your exhibition, actually have some plates and some silverware from some of these restaurants where she held these events. What were some of the restaurants and do any of them exist today? So Little Hungary was on East Houston. Even the site where it was is gone. Cafe Boulevard, where um, the ragged editors often met, that's gone. She met, they met at Joel's Bohemia, which is uh, right near Times Square, and the building does survive. Uh, Joel, Joel, the owner of that restaurant, classic ragged edger, um, his last name was Rinaldo. He published almost unintelligible anti-Darwinist screeds and anti-prohibitionist screeds. So you can't understand the, the material culture of the Ragged Edgers world unless you buy their cutlery, glassware, dinner plates. I have a wine siphon from uh, Little Hungary in my Grolier show. I have a, a creamer from Cafe Boulevard. The only one that I know where they gathered that still survives is Keene's Chop House on West 36th Street. And that interior is virtually unchanged from the days when the Ragged Edgers dined there. Oh, I think it's one of the most remarkable dining spots from that period. It was certainly one of my favorites. Well, we'll have to have a reunion of, of modern Ragged Edgers there, right? Now, Zoe died pr really prematurely. Uh, and you've shared with me that, that she really often shaved years off her age. So she was, I believe, 53, correct, when she, she died. But the circumstances of her death were perhaps 
what she became most famous for at the time. Can you talk about that? What happened? So when I started this research project in the fall of 2018, the only thing that Zoe was known for is that she had accurately predicted her own death. In the Jan-Feb 1914 issue of The East Side, it opens with a long description of her recent dream that her mother, Henrietta, who had died in 1897, had emerged at her bedside on East 15th Street, the literary sanctum, and warned, you're the next of my many children to die. Zoe describes this dream. She describes how she uh, screamed when her mother first gave her this warning, but then grew resigned to her fate. And she wrote, if my mother's warning is comes true, I will be glad if I've interested anybody in the poor. Um, I will have done some good in the world if I have interested anybody in the fate of the poor. She also describes her ideal funeral ritual in this essay. She mailed it off to her subscribers. She went to a Ragged Edge dinner at Cafe Boulevard. She collapsed at the dinner. She was brought to the People's Hospital, which was right across um, a few blocks up on 2nd Avenue from the restaurant. And uh, she died a day or so later. And the news that the Queen of Bohemia had accurately predicted her own death made headlines in hundreds of newspapers nationwide. Many of them reported her age as being about six, seven, eight, nine years younger than she was. She was shaving years off her age even on the census by the time she died at age 53. Um, someone published close to her real age in a book of profiles of writers from Kentucky, and she called that man a chronological fiend stealing her youth. So Eve, you recounted a few minutes ago the moments when Zoe herself went undercover to try to get a perspective or try to get a story. But you have shared with me that you have actually on occasion gone undercover to be able to see or understand bits of Zoe's life a little bit better. Would you share those for the Gilded Gentleman uh, listeners, please? So I tried the honest way to get myself into 338 East 15th Street, where I know she lived. And I bugged the rental agency numerous times saying, straightforwardly, I'm a historian. I need five minutes. Could you just tell the super to let me in? I won't be any trouble. I just want to see. I just want to experience the building and get a sense of whether her spirit. No, I didn't mention the spirit in the emails. Um, I tried the honest way and I failed. He never responded. So finally, I went on street easy. Please, the the God of that Zoe worshipped, could he possibly forgive or she possibly forgive me? I said, I'm looking, I'm scouting apartments for my niece who's moving to New York. And I got in pretending to, and my niece was moving to town. It's not a complete fabrication. So I was able to keep my fiction, in fact, somewhat sorted. And um, I got in. And then I went back with Catherine Segerson, who's a direct descendant of one of Zoe's sisters, and we weaseled our way in again. But that time we were honest and we said, we're here researching the Queen of Bohemia. And uh, I also went into the building where her uh, frenemy, Courtney Lemon, who threatened to sue her and gotten her novel suppressed. I went into the building on West 119th Street, where he lived. I went into the building at 82nd and Columbus, where I know that she lived during her brief second marriage. Again, each time saying I was scouting for apartments for my niece. And if they were really big apartments and it seemed kind of strange to be scouting an apartment for someone who's probably in their 20s, I would say that my daughter and my niece are going to live together. That's why I'm looking at a three, four bedroom place. Well, your secret is safe with all of us, I assure you. But it it begs a fascinating point. Even though some of those spaces have changed, certainly since Zoe's time, what is it like? to see a space that she would have known? And how does that contribute to your understanding of her? So sometimes there's almost nothing left except maybe a brick wall. I went into the building where where Joel's Bohemia was, pretending that I'm scouting places to throw a big party for my older brother for a milestone birthday. Um, and there was nothing there except 
this one haunting little scrap of brick. But I have to do a shout out to the Baker sisters who own a brownstone uptown where Zoe lived around 1901 and where she wrote The Color of His Soul. Um, the Baker sisters are amazing caretakers of this uh, brownstone, and they let me in just the other day. And I was absolutely honest with them. I said, I'm researching a woman novelist who believed in women's empowerment and uh, told great stories. And I know she lived in your building in 1901. And uh, the wonderful Baker sisters gave me a tour to touch a stair rail that I know she had her hand on and to understand what was going through through her mind. I know that year of 1901 was full of upheaval for her to be able to touch the beautifully preserved handrail. There's almost an electric shock. I've been in the courtroom in Wichita where she got her divorce granted. And I can tell you the smile like sunshine that crossed her face. And I sat in that Wichita courtroom with sun pouring in. Why do you think that Zoe Anderson Norris has been until now, thanks to you, a forgotten name today. She died suddenly. I don't know how much of her own work she even owned by that point. She had very few possessions by the end of her life. She had no will. Um, she had virtually no valuables left. One box of papers went to her daughter, who um, had moved back to Harrodsburg. Um, her daughter was married to a seed company owner, living a, a sedate life in what Zoe called a little old dog kennel town. Many of so, so, so for her daughter to perpetuate her literary legacy somehow, I know that her daughter had loved her magazine and had wanted it to live on and was sad that her name wasn't better known. And I can also see that her daughter, her daughter's, her daughter Clarence had a daughter named Mary who tried also to perpetuate Zoe's legacy by getting some of her unpublished work published, founding a theater called the Ragged Edge Theater in Harrodsburg in Zoe's memory. Many of Zoe's writer friends, a number of them served in World War I. Um, I know that at least one of them came back traumatized and uh, switched from being a writer to being an artist. Would he, had he been in better health when he got back from World War I service, have written something about her? I don't know. I know she was friends with the Black pastor and author James Carruthers. He mentions how much he regretted her death in his memoir, which was published in 1916, and he died soon after he published it. Would he have written more about her? Had he lived longer? I don't know. Um, Sophie Irene Loeb, who I know regarded Zoe as an inspiration, um, also died fairly young and didn't live to write a memoir. I keep finding wisps of paper. I found a letter that she wrote to the head of Stanford, David Starr Jordan, the other day, I found the text of a speech that a Lebanese-born writer named Amin Rahani gave at a Ragged Edge Club dinner. There's wisps of paper scattered all over, but there never was someone with the resources and connections um, in the literary world to make sure that her legacy was kept in the public eye. But now that's you. She found me. You and know? we can't wait for the biography. You're just going to have to come back when the biography comes out and we can talk about more subjects. So what do you think Zoe's greatest contribution was that is particularly resonant for us today? I see the world through Zoe's eyes at times and I read headlines and I think, is it possible that so little has changed? I do know that she would be happy were she alive today at how many women hold positions of highest power around the world. I know that she would be happy how largely well laws against child labor are enforced. I know that she would be happy at how many Immigrants she saw, newly arrived, living in chaos, um, have made good. I know she would be annoyed at how many men in power still get away with assorted crimes and blame women or distort women's versions of the story. That would make her enraged. Now, you know I have to ask my trademark gilded gentleman question, Eve. So if Zoe were sitting right here at the table with us and you could ask her anything, what would you want to know directly from her? I would ask her 
if so, when you go to write about me, how are you going to portray me? Because she took each and every one of her friends and her family members, and she wove them into her fiction and journalism. Were she to write about the woman writing about her, how would I get portrayed? And how annoyed would I be at her when I read it, the depiction of myself in print? What do you think she would do? How do you think she would portray you? I think she would be nothing but complimentary. Oh, I think she would portray me as a nitpicker. And I also think she would be really (laughs) annoyed. I I went to her grave in Harrodsburg and I said, you wrote a lot of great words. And and I said, you're going to like this book, but I have to. I'm sorry, Zoe. I have to give you a real age. Her gravestone doesn't have her birth year on it. Now, Eve... I hope we have piqued the interest of many, many listeners who I'm sure did not know the name Zoe Anderson Norris before we began our conversation here. So what can you advise listeners to do who are now incredibly curious to read something of Zoe's work, whether it's her stories, whether it's her journalism, whether it's her novels? Where can someone find her writings today? 75 to 80 percent of her magazine works are available on various uh, databases, archive.org, Hathitrust, um, or just Google Books. The entire run of the East Side is digitized. The first 24 issues are on Hathitrust, and the last five issues um, are available through Princeton University's library. Shout out to Princeton, which digitized my loose issues of, her, of, of the, last, the last five examples of her magazine. Um, her novels are either on archive.org, Hathitrust, or Google Books, and it's panoply. And oh, and her and various newspaper databases, including through the Library of Congress, have her uh, newspaper journalism and also her syndicated fiction that appeared in newspapers. I'd say 85% overall of her work is available digitally now. And am I correct from our coffee conversations about Zoe that you have amassed the entire run of the East Side that you own. Am I correct about that? I own much more than she would have had in her apartment when she died. I own multiple editions of her father's translation of the New Testament. I own what would annoy her to no end, which is several books illustrated by her second husband. I own dozens of the magazines that she contributed to, and I own what is believed to be the only full run of the East Side in private hands. And I only know of one one other complete run um, in institutional hands, and it's at City College. Well, Eve, Zoe may have been annoyed, but I think she would have been deeply proud of your, once again, deeply incisive scholarship, perspective, opinions, interpretations of her life. And I have to thank you once again for bringing a life of a forgotten Gilded Age woman back to our world today. Thank you so much. And I can't thank you enough for joining me once again for a conversation on The Gilded Gentleman. Just as you did with Mary Rogers Williams, you are just shedding light on someone that we must know, that we must discover, and I think is so important to understand the Gilded Age. And I thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me, Carl. So my show at the Gruyer Club uh, from March 2nd to May 13th, open to the public for free, 10 to 5 on weekdays um, and and on Saturdays. And there will be links to that on the uh, Gilded Gentleman website. And also, I will keep Gilded Gentleman listeners apprised of Eve's forthcoming biography on Zoe Anderson Norris. Thank you again, Eve. I'm so grateful you've been here. Thank you for having me. Love. Love, love, love your podcast, Carl. Well, you are always welcome, and I can't wait to come up with the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, my listeners, for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was produced and edited by Karen Gannon. I invite you to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me in a very real way to manage the costs of creating and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. An enormous thank you to my patrons. And I'll see you soon. What's life without a little glint of gold? (laughs) 